This is Canada Reads American Style, featuring two friends who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our host Rebecca from Michigan and Tara from Ontario. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca and Tara and I are so excited to welcome our favorite and most frequent guest, Ali Hassan. And honestly, I'm going to go through this, but everybody already knows all this, but Ali is a stand-up comic and actor who has performed for audiences across Canada and internationally. He's the host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud, a frequent guest host of CBC Radio's Q, host of Canada Reads, stars on the sitcom Run the Burbs, and the host of two podcasts, Doctor versus Comedian, and this podcast is delicious. Welcome, Ali. Thank you so much. Always happy to be here. I didn't realize I was the uh, the guest who you have on most frequently. That's, that's yeah, you're you're number one. That's both uh, you know troubling uh, <laughs> from a perspective of people getting tired of me, but also uh, it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I'll tell people also if you know you have new listeners who are like, well, how do I see this guy? How do I hear this guy? Some of those shows on CBC Radio are available on NPR, PRX, that kind of thing. Uh, Run the Burbs, that sitcom, just might be, before the end of the year, we might just hear something about it coming to the U.S. uh, for for, for American viewers. Awesome. So that'll be great. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, Ali, let's jump in with, uh, I'm going to ask my first question, and we'll jump right into your memoir. So I have, over the last couple of years, been reading more memoirs, and Mm -hmm. I have found that my favorite ones are those in which the author is particularly, almost brutally honest at times. Hmm. Likewise, I find my favorite comedians are also the ones who I find to be particularly honest. Do you think that your career in stand-up helped you write your memoir? Yeah, I I really do think so. I mean, I was listening to an interview with Mike Berbiglia, and if your listeners don't know Mike, he's a particularly honest uh, comedian who does these, um, you know, uh, solo shows, one-man show. Uh, one of the best is My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. Uh, recommend everybody sees that. And in that, you know, he was talking in an interview about how he, when he first met his girlfriend, who then wound up being his wife, when he first met her, he says to her, and he tells the audience, he goes, I love you. And she goes, you love me? I mean, I mean, I think you're cool. So <laughs> he's so embarrassed by that. Like, what kind of loser, like right out of the <laughs> gate says, I love you. And the, sometimes just like, I can't believe I'm sharing this with people. That was a super embarrassing moment. But I related to that so much. There's so much that I share on stage that, you know, I, I feel I do feel bad for my wife and kids who are uh, sort of along for the ride, whether they want to be or not. Uh, but I've shared so much. And when you're sharing something with somebody as you make eye contact with them, <laughs> a stranger, maybe maybe it makes it easier to 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 to. to do it almost uh, kind of anonymously in a book. Of course, it's not anonymous. My face is on the cover of this book. It's very clear who wrote this. Um, but I think that's that's part of, as you say to you know, Tara. I I do. I do enjoy that type of comedy, and I I still like you know Norm Macdonald was still the type of guy you didn't learn a you didn't learn a thing about Norm Macdonald, yeah. but you were still entertained. 
but I do love going down a, an honest path with with somebody. And I think those those solo shows, those one hour and ninety minute shows, or somebody just kind of a truth telling, storytelling exercise. I I can't. I you know that's that that's the inspirational stuff for me. So I I, I wrote it from that perspective too. This is what I like reading, and also this is what I've been enjoying doing on stage mm-hmm. for so many years. So yeah, maybe it did come naturally. Okay. Well, I have to laugh and say that the main part of the intro that I left out is that the reason we have you here today is because you've written this amazing uh, memoir, Is There Bacon in Heaven? So gosh, I apologize for leaving off the the main topic for today. <laughs> I noticed I noticed that you left that out. I said, she's got to be bringing it in in a big uh, in a big creative way, I'm I'm sure she's holding on to that for a reason. Yeah, I um, wish I had like a drum to do like a drum solo or something to introduce it. But gosh, oh well. <laughs> anyway, well, my question for you is a little more serious, I think. But when I was growing up, you know, we had this concept in the United States of the melting pot, and everybody was supposed to meld and have one identity. And you mentioned in the introduction that it took you years to be more comfortable with who you are as a cultural Muslim. And I wondered if you think your children will have to walk the same identity path. Yeah, I think we've screwed them over pretty good, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, we, you know, my wife and I, we always talk about, even though we're not, uh, we're not particularly uh, well-versed in, in anything about religion, at the same time, my wife went to Catholic school and I went to, um, and, and she went to Muslim Sunday school and I went to Muslim Sunday school and both of us did have, uh, what was called for me, it was called MRE, which is moral and religious education. We had a few years of that in high school. And so we have these, these basics and we are shocked at times to see how that doesn't exist with our children. I don't know what it's like in the U S, uh, in Michigan in particular, but we don't teach. We don't. I'm not a teacher. It is not taught in school anymore, uh, mm-hmm. religion and that kind of thing. So sometimes the kids don't know something so basic and we're like, how do you not know this? And I guess it's that's uh, that's our fault. That's my wife and I who have to take over uh, either personally or by sending them to some school where they get a little bit of a more formal religious education. But it's, you know, it was a nice in between in the school to learn about Religion, I, I, whether you practice or not, I don't think it's propaganda. I don't think it's like, um, you know, there's no agenda behind it. I think that religions have had a huge impact uh, on, on, on shaping the civilization we live in. So just from a historical and social perspective, I think it should be taught, but it isn't. And, uh, and we're not teaching them. So it's, I, I, I worry about how confused they'll be as they get older, but, but this book was a little bit, you know, or, or I would say in large part to address that, to explain to them why I wasn't able to give them more of an, a, a religious education and, and who raised me and who I am and who's raising them effectively. And, you know, uh, again, I, I say it in the book, I, this may not answer all your questions, but it might help explain why you don't have your questions getting answered. So I, I do worry a little bit for them, but at the same time, I think that they know that we're pretty open to whatever they want to explore, whatever they want to um, learn about. We're here to help them down that path. And, and, and hopefully they at least have that curiosity. 
Yeah. Well, in Canada, though, I mean, is it okay? So in the United States, everybody's, you know, they'll say like, oh, I'm, you know, Italian American or, or something like that. So is it, is the identity really there in the same way? Or is it not like, do they leave the Canadian part out? Are they do, is their identity more about who they are in their family base? I think you, you're onto something there. You know, it, we didn't have the melting pot um, theory as much as we had multiculturalism, and it was a celebration mm-hmm. of cultures. And it was yeah. about you bringing your culture to this country and uh, us celebrating that culture and learning from that culture. I mean, these were ideas on paper. Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. But yeah, I, I know plenty of people who, yeah, I, I must say that growing up, I grew up in the province of Quebec and Quebec is, is, uh, you know, refer to themselves as a distinct society from time to time. It's pretty uh, a unique place from a, a number of pers- perspectives. So I would say I was a Quebecer sometimes. I would say I'm like a Pakistani Quebecer. I would say I'm a Montrealer. I would say, uh, you know, Muslim. Um, that I would say, you know, a little more reluctantly, cause I was like, I don't want to disappoint people with my level of religiosity. You know, it's like when, you meet somebody who's vegan and then somebody else is vegan, but they start talking about how they do still eat chicken and they love chicken wings and they'll have lamb on Easter. And then you're, you know, the real vegan is like, Hey, you're not even part of this group. Get out of here. So I always was worried about that, that I'm not going to be treated like a, you know, like you're, you're Muslim in name only. So then the book, you know, it really covers a lot of that and coming to the term and the identity of being a cultural Muslim was so important to me for that reason. I was like, oh, this is this is very comfortable. But getting back to your uh, question about uh, Canada, I think, yeah, for a lot of people, myself included, the Canadian part of our identity was either assumed or not mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that doesn't certainly doesn't apply to everybody. But I think I've met very you know a lot of people who will just simply sum it up as I'm Italian, I'm Jamaican. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I prefer that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, um, Ali, you're going to be tell I'm a fan of comedy because my next question refers to comedy again. And to your in your memoir, you refer to comedy as the great equalizer, which I thought was just a really cool statement. Could you expand mm-hmm. on that? Yeah, and I think I think that applies more in Canada than it does in the U.S. Um, the the province of Quebec, again, another distinct thing about Quebec, we do have a star system similar to uh, America and the way comedy is in America, you definitely have a star system in the rest of Canada. Not really a star system. It's a lot of comedians. Uh, a few of them do very well. Some of them are sort of in the middle and most are kind of unknowns. You know, the, the vast, vast majority are sort of unknowns. And I think getting on stage, you know, the great equalizer for me was everything else stopped mattering once you got on stage, it was like, are you funny? Are you funny? Right. You couldn't bring, I'm this person's kid. You know, this is my dad, or I do this here. I, I, uh, you know, we helped build this club. We invested in this club. So can I get more stage time? It was this really sort of, everybody gets five minutes. And if you're good, Let's see what we can do with you. Maybe we'll put you, you know, you'll, you'll start hosting 
And if you start hosting, maybe we'll get you to host weekends eventually. And then after you start hosting on weekends, we'll get you to do a spot before a headline or some touring headliner. And then you sort of work your way up. But but everybody was reduced to the same. Um, and the other thing is a lot of people would walk in with uh, big egos based on a variety of different things. I make my friends laugh. I'm the most hilarious person. <laughs> and then on stage, the great equalizer, it was like, look, we all had the same, you know, you, and you do get people who are like, they're not very good, that crowd. And then the next comic goes up and has a fantastic time with that crowd. So it's like, mm, was it them? Was it them? It was probably you. In most cases, it's you. So the, the, the audience is also the great, great equalizer, right? We have the same audience. We're all getting up there. We have the same opportunity, same amount of time, especially when you're starting comedy. And now it's just, let's see what you got. See if you can make them laugh. And all those hours of making your friends laugh in a basement mean nothing if you can't make this paying audience laugh. So it's the great equalizer in so many different ways. Um, but it really does, you know, bring, you know, when you meet comedians who you started with, it's, it's like meeting, um, you know, I, 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 I struggle to say this, but it is like meeting somebody who you went to war with or you did something, you know, like, Oh my God, we were in the trenches. We were in the trenches together. Remember that crowd on that show on that Friday night and this kind of thing. You know, it's a, there's a bond. There's an unspeakable bond between people who, who go through this together. So I, um, I loved comedy immediately. There was no talk of like seniority and this person gets preference and this. It was really, there's a little bit of that, but so much less compared to, uh, to, to, to every other industry I'd ever been in. Yeah, and I... I love hearing that because I'm a big, I have a, I have satellite radio and I listen to Just for Laughs all the time. And I love, there are a ton of Canadian comedians that I love. And I like the idea that it's, there is, it is sort of more equal in that sense than the big, you know, the big names in the U.S. and, and that type of thing. Because I love mm -hmm. comedy too. I've been doing that, going to shows since the 80s. And yeah, I, I agree with Tara. I, I love it too. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Now we're back to serious again because I'm a serious <laughs> one, I guess. But um, I just want to, and I will, we will sum up our comments about your memoir too at the end. I do want to throw that out there too. But I found it interesting that you identified kind of being a white guy when you were younger and mm. that maybe you weren't really aware of racism. And so I kind of have a two part question. I wondered, is it partly because at your core you're a positive person and maybe didn't want to see the racism? And then the second part is, is it worse now in 2022 than when you were growing up? And does it affect you differently now that you have children? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting questions. Both of them. I think the first question you're on to something, whereas wherein I, I was pretty positive. I wanted to see the world a certain way. You grow up in middle-class suburbs and you know, you don't see as much, struggle directly around you. And I, and I also grew up as a young kid, I was in a neighborhood, um, it, you know, on the South shore of Montreal, there's a, there's a municipality called Brossard and in Brossard, all the sections are divided by, by letters. So a section, B section. And when you say the letter, it speaks to what kind of socioeconomic um, class you're, you're you're in? You know, people know that certain sections are much more wealthy, other sections are more just sort of uh, tiny homes or duplexes, and you know. So the P section where I grew up, where I you know, met my 
childhood buddies and all this from age, I would say five till 10 or so was a, was a landing pad, a landing pad and a launching pad for young immigrants with, with, with young families. So we had this, um, uh, Nigerian neighbors, these four brothers, their dad was a, was a doctor who would tour around Canada, right? He was a new doctor. So he wasn't able to practice in a hospital. He would have to go to these small communities in need of a doctor. So he was doing that and he wasn't able to, he was gone quite a bit. We saw their mother a lot. We saw the kids a lot. We'd barely see the father. Uh, these other, you know, so they were Nigerian originally. Then we had these Indian Hindu families close to us. That was my friends, Manish and Bhavna, who I grew up with, who are my friends today. Uh, we had Vietnamese neighbors. We had this other couple. The mother was from Kentucky. The father was from Pakistan. That was, they had a nice connection with my parents. And so it's like this group of people from varying ethnicities and we all got along and religion didn't come up. It only came up in my own mind when I watched people eat bacon that I was supposedly not able to eat. Then I was like, how come I thought there was only one God? What's happening here? How come that one God tells these people they can and I can't? So I, I, I remember religion existing in my mind in that regard, but not really, not really being at the forefront at all. So... Um, yeah, I think I think probably I didn't see racism. I didn't want to believe it. And then you, when you once you get to your teens, people are sort of a little more um, comfortable. They're pushing their own boundaries of what they can say and get away with, right? And so then you would hear it more often. And then, um, you know, it wouldn't affect me as much until I had some knowledge of what it means when somebody calls me some particular racial slur. And um, I would see it... Uh, a fair amount and your question is is it is it worse now yeah i think i think it's similar because it feels worse now because people are emboldened when mm -hmm. you have certain people in power who uh, say things that, you know, makes it sound, and I'm not just talking about uh, Donald Trump, I'm talking about, you know, leaders in, in Canada as well and in Quebec where I'm from. People say things and you're like, that's your inside voice. Why are you letting <laughs> that out? You shouldn't be saying that out loud. Um, so, so people feel more emboldened to say the racist things they've always been thinking. So I don't think racism was just created uh, in anybody, I think it was, it's always there. And it's like, okay, I always thought that now I can say it out loud. So we, we do have that effect a little bit, mm -hmm. but also I think I've reached a place, you know, if somebody was racist to me, uh, when I was younger, it, it, it felt like it, it, it fell upon me to, um, change their mind. And sometimes that meant getting in a fight. And sometimes that meant saying something racist back to them to let them know that that's not appropriate. I have a completely different perspective now. I know I, I feel like people know what's appropriate and it's, it's not mm -hmm. uh, in general. And when they're saying it, they're usually saying something to get a rise out of you. They're saying something because, you know, whatever. Their father probably didn't hug them as a young person and this is how they get attention, whatever the, the case is. But now my perspective is more like, I don't really care what you think. Why would I, why would I let the thoughts of a complete stranger affect me in any way? Um, we just had this conversation recently. I was at a, a hotel in Halifax 
I was going to Newfoundland on the far east coast of Canada and the winds were too bad. So the plane turned around and we landed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So it's a bunch of people headed to Newfoundland who are now in this hotel, airport hotel in Halifax. And we're all sort of gathered around the bar and, you know, got this surprise extra day in our, in our visit, in our work schedule, in our holiday, whatever it was at a hotel. And this one couple starts telling me like, um, I've never cared for Indian people. Oh. And I thought her husband might be like, uh, honey, take it easy. And he didn't at all. He was just kind of nodding in agreement. She, I, you know, they were asking me where I'm from. And I say, you know, Pakistani, my family comes from India. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we've never really cared for Indian people. And this other woman looks at me from beside me and is like, are you going to let them talk to you like that? And I just laughed out loud. I was like, you people, I mean, these are people in their 60s. I'm not going to get them and change their mind. If they think they can say that out loud directly to me, I, I just had to laugh. I was like, this is hilarious to me. And this other woman who was a white woman was horrified and wondering what I was laughing about. But I'm like, this, this, is, this is people for you. You know, I'm not, I, I would rather... Write, write a book and humanize somebody who's Muslim and remind people that we have similarities more than we have differences, remind people that Muslims are not a monolith. I would rather do that on stage, on screen, in a book, rather than interact with somebody who I don't really care about their opinion anyway. Uh, it's no different for me from my friends who become those social justice warriors online and try to change people's mind online. And it's like, you're not, it's just not going to happen. And you're kind of, you're kind of disrespecting your own time when you go, get into these, mm. right? There's very different to have like a, a, a fruitful, uh, honest conversation at a bar, but with somebody who is so out of touch with things that they can and can't say, or somebody who's deliberately hateful, I just, I couldn't care less anymore. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that response. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. yeah, me too. I'm going to take, I'm going to veer again, Allie. So, veer. veer all you like. So I grew up listening to radio. So I grew up in Newfoundland. So I grew up listening right. to jigs and reels on Sunday morning. And then when I hit university, I started listening to CBC. And that's my history. Like I loved radio. I'm now mm -hmm. an avid podcast listener right oh and so and you yourself are the co-host of two podcasts the doctor versus comedians and this podcast tastes delicious right that's at that correct yeah. and yeah. i'm going to do a little aside and thank you for introducing me to hannah gadsby because oh yeah you guys spoke about her on doctors versus comedian or doctor versus comedian and then i was like i have to check her out and she is now one of my favorites. So that's, oh, that's so great. Oh, she's amazing. Uh, for the same reason that I mentioned about the honesty in comedy that you have, she also obviously has oh, it. Oh, so much so. And yeah, in her memoir, which I, I don't know if you've read yet. but I haven't. Oh, I didn't know it was out. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, uh, sorry, that's my little aside. Yeah. But are you surprised, as now a co-host of two podcasts, and you're also involved on radio and have been in the past, are you surprised at the popularity that podcasts have taken? I'm really not. I mean, it goes back to what both of you were suggesting about people liking honest comedy and honest shows. 
And, you know, when you like honesty and you like storytelling, that's already like nothing beats radio. Mm -hmm. Nothing beats the intimacy of that medium when it comes to storytelling. It's so directly in contact with you. And this is the funny thing, because I work for CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And there's CBC television and CBC radio. And, you know, people on radio are like, ugh, television, why would you? You know, and people on television are like, oh, radio, how pedestrian. You know, television is like, because the people in television work very hard to create all these sets and all these designs and camera angles. And they work incredibly hard. And there's a lot of money in it. And it feels like this is radio. That's just some person in front of a mic. What you know? But I mean, what what's great about television or working in television is, can also be a huge distraction, right? Mm-hmm. When I'm watching somebody on, on camera, I'm also looking at their outfit. I'm looking at things that I don't even know I'm looking at. The background and things they do with their, maybe the, the way they wrinkle their nose or their forehead and all these things are how you're, you're, you're picking up hundreds of things that you don't even know about, but radio, what a direct, yeah. beautiful, intimate connection. I can't, I can't speak highly of it enough. I'll just tell you something, uh, Tara, just going back to your, you know, radio upbringing, one of my goals, and I'm not, I'm not m- much of one to sort of have a vision board and manifest things, but I do write out goals for myself every year. What do I want to accomplish this year? And, um, you know, I would say four out of 10 things get accomplished and the other six are like, okay, push that to next year, hopefully. Yeah. And some just drop and you don't want that as much as you did. But one of my goals for a long time is to get on a show called NPR with Terry Gross. Yeah. And the, the, the most bittersweet thing would be if I get on Terry Gross, get on NPR and Terry Gross is off that week. All, <laughs> all due respect to David Biancooli, who is fantastic. But I, it was CBC Radio and it was NPR from uh, VPR. Vermont Public Radio was the one who would carry it. And I live on the South Shore of Montreal, which is just a half an hour, 45 minutes tops from the Vermont and New York border. So we would get... Public NPR from uh, you know upstate New York and uh, Vermont, and that show NPR those those interviews. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I learned how to interview just by listening to years of Terry Gross. I just loved her. I loved her curiosity. I loved her questions. And I mean, that's a weird goal to have. Why other people are like, I want to perform at the Apollo. Excuse me, I want to perform at the Apollo, or I want to you know be on Fallon. I would love those things. But part of my thing is really NPR, fresh air with Terry Gross. That's something that I, that I want. So these are the things that kept me company in the car on long drives and in these like uh, misguided uh, long distance relationships that I was in. You know, I, I would get there bolstered by my time listening to uh, to radio and beautiful conversations. So your original question is, am I surprised about the popularity of podcasts? I might be surprised at how, you know, people say everyone and their mom has a podcast, like <laughs> how far it's gone, but why not? You know what I'm most surprised about? Not the popularity of podcasts. I'm most surprised about how many people find time to listen to how many podcasts. You know, yeah. I have, I've got eight, I've got eight. And to add another one, I need to subtract one. I mean, there's no, I, I got to delete a couple to, to add a few more. There's just not enough time in the world. Whereas I know 
people who've got, I don't know, over 20 at the same time and they're listening here and there. And so I'm just like kind of confused about where you find the time to listen to all of those podcasts, but it is incredibly impressive. And it speaks to the popularity of podcasts because one person, um, it's not like, you know, you listen to um, K-Rock FM every morning. It's like now you can in the three hours that you listen to, you know, whatever, either a music radio station or something like Howard Stearns and people take that time and listen to five different episodes of a podcast in a, in a, in a day or even before noon. And I'm, I'm baffled by how people have the time for that, but I am very impressed. And I, I obviously welcome it as a host of a, a co-host of two podcasts <laughs> and three, if you count my CBC radio ones, which are also in podcast form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to uh, kind of sum up, uh, and I'm hoping Tara, I'm kind of putting her on the spot a little bit, but I want us to both kind of acknowledge the memoir and how much we loved it and what we kind of loved about it. And I just want to say, after I finished reading it, I I kind of said, it's a love letter to your children, because I thought, man, if you were my dad and I had this book to read at a certain point, like young adult or adulthood... I would just be in love with this whole story that you told. Like I, every aspect of it, there's humor, there's insight, there's, it just shows who you are as a compassionate, positive minded person. And I loved all the stuff about your dad because there were times my, my dad was similar in some ways to your, or my dad is similar to your dad in some ways. And I was laughing about that and I could feel some of the frustration about it, but Mm. I, think you just did a super, super job. And thank you for sharing your story. And yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And and I'm, I don't know, I think we should start some kind of a, a movement to get Terry Gross to interview you. I think that we need to push <laughs> for that. Would, yeah, I would love that. There's a, I'm, I'm filming a second season of a show called Sort Of on HBO Max. I imagine she, that'll come across her radar. And then, um, you know, Run the Burbs, hopefully, will come across her radar uh, when it does get into the U.S. And, yeah, maybe the title of the book will be enough to entice her as a as a woman who grew up Jewish, you know. And, and also, we have this strange relationship. Uh, we share that strange relationship with, with Bacon, with a lot of Jewish people. So who knows? I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, but it would, be, it would be quite fantastic. And I appreciate you saying that. You know, I really... People have been asking me, it, it seems it's like, um, it's a common question for an author to be, who, who is the book written for? And it feels a little bit like a corny sales pitchy answer to be like, it's written for almost everyone. Uh, but, but you just illustrated exactly why I say that because yes, I'm a, a, a Pakistani Muslim, you know, Quebecois kid growing up and struggling with my identity and belonging but at the same time, this really is about relationship with your parents and being a parent and how to figure that out and, and how to figure out belonging. Like in, who, who among us hasn't tried to figure out how to belong in some circle and how to just be themselves and be comfortable in their own skin? And so I, I don't think your background, your, your sort of your ethnic background or sociopolitical economic background matters. I do think it's a book that really... Uh, in in a in a humorous way and a way that I'm quite proud of the the way I delivered it the way I was able to with my editor I cannot this was a joint effort I have to give Justin Stoller my editor at Simon and Schuster so much re- respect and credit but um, I'm just so happy about what we were able to create together 
and and I, and I do think it's it's something that a lot of people will enjoy from different walks of life. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, Ali, I feel so after your podcasts and the years that you've spent the last several years on Canada Reads, that a little part of me, I feel like I know you, like as a friend. So when I sat down with your memoir, I felt like I was reading, I was sitting down with a friend who's a really good storyteller and also really funny. Because mm. it's not easy to make people laugh in person. And I think it's even more difficult to make them laugh through the written word. And I laughed when I was reading your book, which I loved. So That's great. Yeah. That's so great to hear. Thank you so much yeah. to both of you. I appreciate you being uh, uh, fans and, and, and supporters. And um, uh, yeah, I, you know, Amazon, uh, whatever books, let me, if you go to Simon and Schuster uh, and look up my, my, um, my book is there bacon in heaven. You can see now I'm struggling to remember Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, a bunch of different booksellers are, uh, are, are carrying the book in the U S. So um, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope nobody has any trouble getting it. We've tried to make it as widely available as possible. Yeah. Well, Allie, thank you so much for uh, being on our podcast today. We really, really appreciate it. And we look forward to chatting with you again uh, early next year for yes. the next Canada reads uh, iteration. Right. Until the next time. Yeah. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us on our bookish journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing Canada Reads American Style wherever you listen. You can connect with the podcast and Rebecca on Instagram at Canada Reads American Style and with Tara at On a Branch Reads. Until next time, keep reading.